Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This show, Metaphysical Milkshake, is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Being your best self feels good for your loved ones and for you. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Milkshake and get back to being you. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hi there, I'm Reza Aslan. And I'm Rain Wilson, and I love you. Are, are you talking to me? I am talking to everyone, including you. Oh. Yes, you, dude. I love you. Yeah, but what does that even mean? I have no idea. That's a great question. Let's dive in. So, you and I both know that we're supposed to love our enemies, right? Rain is that? I mean, that's what they say in the Bible. That's what right? it tells us in the Bible. And all the, love our enemies. I'm sure they, it's sure it's in the Quran too, and the Bhagavad Gita. It's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. I guess the question is, to what end? <laughs> like what? I'm sorry. Like what are we loving our enemies for? We have some different points of view on this, Reza. I mean, I truly believe that love is the maximum force for change in the world. That it's uh, it's a it's a power that we need to draw on. That it's it's specific. That it leads us to action, and uh, we are we are lost without it. I think in this day and age of everyone shouting at each other, outraged at each other, there's certainly a lot to be outraged about. But you know what? Shouting at each other is just not going to get it done. It's just not. I mean, you can think it is. Let's. Let's try it for 10 years and see how that works out. Well, see, we're actually not as far off as you think it is. I, too, think that love is a profound tool of social change. I do think that it is a a magical quality and that you can really, um, you know, you you can do profound things with it. But who deserves that love? You know, I mean, yes, can love be a force of social transformation? Yes. Do you get that social transformation by loving your enemy? I don't know. I don't think that's the case. I mean, I think shouldn't you fight your enemy? If your enemy is trying to destroy you, do you really think that if you love them that somehow that'll change your enemy, that'll make things better? I mean, let's really think about this. I think that's a false dichotomy. I think you can't say like the choices are to love them or to fight them. The choice is, I think— to love them, to understand that they can change and that they can redeem themselves, and to absolutely disagree with what it is that they're doing and let them know in un- no uncertain terms and fight for change 
while loving everyone on that path. You know what we need? What do we need? We need someone to come between us okay. and and help us sort this thing out. And it turns out we have exactly that guess. Who could that be? Her name is Valerie Kaur. She's a religious scholar, a lawyer, a civil rights activist. She's done everything from working at Guantanamo Bay and in Supermax prisons to clerking with the Senate Judiciary Committee. And her newest thing is that she started this project called Revolutionary Love. And I guess what she says is the point of it is to reclaim love as a force for social change. She calls it um, a compass and a framework for life and perhaps maybe even a way to save lives. And maybe she can she can help us figure this out. Uh, let's let's find out. My name is Valerie Kaur. I am a civil rights activist and a movement lawyer and the founder of the Revolutionary Love Project. I like I like the idea of a revolutionary love. What what is that exactly? I like the idea that a lawyer could somehow be involved in revolutionary love. Please explain. (laughs) Well, let me be clear. I was the person in the audience who anytime someone said, all you need is love, I would cringe and roll my eyes. Mm. So I am doing right now. (laughs) Yes, I I was you. (laughs) So let me invite you into what I've discovered. So revolutionary love, I believe, is the call of our times. It is the choice to enter into labor for others, for our opponents, and for ourselves. That's how I'm defining it. But I came to it um, sort of the long and hard way. So I was a civil rights activist for 15 years. I went from campaign to campaign, from community to community. I really became an activist in the wake of September 11th um, when my uncle was murdered a man I called Uncle Bobir Sodi was the first person murdered in a hate crime after right. 9/11. Confused. He was a family friend. Yeah. So he was, he was confused uh, to be a Muslim. Yes, he was a turban sick father right. who was killed by someone who called himself a patriot. And so I devoted my life. I became part of a generation of Sikh and Muslim advocates who um, were organizing around the problem of hate and hate crimes. And I just thought if we just filed enough lawsuits, if we just made enough films, if we launched enough campaigns, then we can make the nation safer for the next generation. How'd that work out? (sighs) Fast forward. (laughs) White nationalists claim this moment as this presidency is our great awakening. Hate crimes are skyrocketing once again at levels that exceed what we saw in the aftermath of 9-11. But now I'm no longer a college kid. I'm, I'm a mother. And I was putting my son to sleep and realizing that for all of our advocacy, that we could not make the nation safer for my son or his generation, that he's actually growing up in a nation more dangerous for him than it was for me or for my grandfather when he arrived 100 years ago to this country. Do you really believe that's true, that that your son is in a more perilous uh, position with hatred around him than your grandfather was 100 years ago arriving in America? That's what the data tells us that Sikh and Muslim Americans are five times more likely to be targets of hate violence than we were before 9-11. I can't think of a time in which I'm the first generation uh, in my family in America, but like if my father or my grandfather were here, I can't imagine a time in which they would have had to sit in a classroom and stare up at a photograph of a president who, with every word, is threatening their very lives, which is what my children do. They sit in the classroom and they pledge allegiance to a flag that's next to a photo of a man who, A, hates them, and B, 
uh, threatens their very lives on a daily basis. How do you feel about Trump? (laughs) (laughs) So, Reza, so your great challenge then is to love Trump. To love him We're for not. his humanity. Let's get let's get to there. No, but I, I interrupted uh, at the beginning. You were talking post 9-11, a lot of activism, right. thought right. we could change the world. And yes. then there's a shift there. There was a shift coming. What yes. was that? It was my existential crisis. Okay. It was like, <laughs> what is the meaning of my life? So right. at this point, I'm at Stanford Law. I'm working on net neutrality. That's my latest issue. I'm watching, you know, another sick grandfather is almost beaten to death in my hometown where my family has lived for 100 years. And I open up my toolkit. I can can make a film. I could organize. I can file a lawsuit and I'm just paralyzed. I can't do anything Um, because my toolkit is useless, I thought. So I left my job. I spent months sort of in seclusion reading and writing and thinking. And I thought back on my life and I thought back on my grandfather's stories. I thought back about my on my community struggles. And I asked myself, like, what is the one thing that has actually created social change for the people I work with? What's the actual thing that has created change in my own life, in my own moments of crisis? And it was never like the film or the lawsuit or the campaign. Those things were necessary elements. But it all came down to a totally surprising question. Is love a practice here? Are people responding in the wake of injustice and massacre with love? Are they receiving love? Are they fighting even their opponents with love? Are they loving themselves? In the absence of love, no change was possible. Only with love as a kind of demanding, rigorous practice was I seeing change. And I thought revolutionary love. You know, if love is more than a rush of feeling, if love is a kind of labor, then love can be taught, love can be modeled, love can be practiced. What might happen if we could equip people to practice love as a force for social justice, both in their lives and in our movement? So that is why I left and created the Revolutionary Love Project with this message, which brings me here. Is revolutionary love essentially, are you defining it as love that spurs action? Also, can we define our terms? Because yes. love is, let's do it. Love's a tough word, you yes. know? Like, I love my wife. I also love People pizza. love puppies. You love, love the Oakland Raiders. I love this podcast. Oh. <laughs> and I do. So let's start just with love. So when we talk about love, we tend to think about it as a rush of feeling. It's an ecstatic emotion that overcomes us. Mm-hmm. And that's because we use romantic love as our primary reference point. Now, falling in love is a beautiful, life-giving human experience. It's delicious. It's delirious. It's like falling into a jar of honey. The problem is, is that it's something that happens to us, that we have very little agency over it. And so we're taught that love is the most important thing on earth, and yet we have little control over when and how it happens. Now, if we expand that definition of love, then we see a different picture. And this was my aha moment. Um, Ten months ago, my daughter was born, and she was placed on my chest. And You know, I am sobbing and I'm shaking and I'm feeling the rush of oxytocin just flooding my body, right? This is falling in love. In the meantime, my mother is opening up her bag and getting ready to feed me, (laughs) feeding her baby as I'm feeding mine, like (laughs) the doll and the chol are out. And I'm looking at my mother and I'm like, oh, my mother has never stopped laboring for me from my birth to my children's birth. Like she already knows what I'm still learning, which is that love is more than a rush of feeling. Love is sweet labor. 
know, it is fierce, it is demanding, it is imperfect, it is bloody, it is a choice that we make over and over and over again. It's like all of the feelings, right? Your mm. your father's like joy is the gift of love. Grief is the price of love. Anger is the force that protects that which is loved. So for thinking about love as sweet labor, and that's the kind of love that we see in our most most life-giving relationships, what might it mean to love beyond what is prescribed? What might it mean to love others who don't look like us, who we don't know? What might it mean to practice love for even our opponents? I know which is hard, which we'll get to. What might it mean to love ourselves who we too often neglect? And I believe that this kind of robust like love as an ethic this call to love has been on the lips of spiritual teachers and geniuses for thousands of years, right? From Buddha to Jesus to Muhammad to Guru Nanak. I mean, Guru Nanak said, if you want to play the game of love with me, step forth with your head on your hand. Can this you, is not can, can easy. You, can you let us know who that person is that you're just referring to for our listeners? Guru Nanak is the founder of the Sikh faith, S-I-K-H, which is the faith tradition that I grew up in. Great. So... Can you put this revolutionary love in context of other forms of social justice and kind of place it in history? Because obviously, I think about Martin Luther King as someone who, inspired by Gandhi, put this kind of love into practice. I mean, people that were, but in both with Gandhi and King, people that were oppressing them, killing their you know, just oppressing their people in every way, filled with hate and rancor. Yes. Um, and not only hating them, but I keep saying oppressing over and over again, but like, yes. like fucking them the fuck up. Yes. And yet calling for love yes. uh, toward those people. So yes. are you just continuing their work or is it different? Can you put it in context? It's a continuation and an evolution. So King... Gandhi, Mandela, they built entire nonviolent movements rooted in this ethic of love, love as a wellspring for courage that people didn't know they had, right? Solidarity that they built wasn't based on duty or obligation. It was based, rooted in the choice to love one another, to love even their oppressors, right? So what might it mean to reclaim love now for this generation, for this time, for this political climate? We are in and of that tradition, but we're doing it differently, First, we're reclaiming love uh, through a feminist lens. And so we're taking seriously the physiology of the body. We're taking seriously love for oneself. We're um, not collapsing uh, the public and private realms. So we're using a lot of feminist work, womanist work to reclaim love. And we're doing it in such a way that is it's a source from which everyone can drink. So it doesn't depend on a belief in a particular religion or a particular God. Okay, wait, wait you, you threw in feminist here. Yes. So, so are I'm you gonna, saying that the previous love is like of the patriarchy or something like that? And so this is a new kind of love based more on feminine forms? Or are you saying it's... So Gandhi, King, Mandela, they talked a lot about how to love others and how to love our opponents. They didn't talk a lot about how to love ourselves. This is the feminist intervention. This is Bell Hooks and Audre Lorde who said, caring for myself is not a form of self-indulgence. It's a form of political warfare. And so we're taking seriously the fact that too often have women of color, like they, the movement has happened on their backs or over their dead bodies. So what might it mean not to think of suffering as a form of service? What might it mean to talk about a form, uh, a practice of love that take seriously the liberation of our bodies, of our um, of the communities who are suffering, even as we're laboring for justice. That's the intervention. 
Folks, good health starts with good habits. And Quip makes it easy by delivering all the oral care essentials you need to care for your mouth. The Quip electric toothbrush is loved by over 7 million mouths and has timed sonic vibrations. They have 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. It's got a lightweight and sleek design, both for adults and kids. And There's no wires, no bulky charger to weigh you down. And on top of your brushing, folks, you can upgrade your Quip with a new smart motor to A, track and improve your brushing with the free Quip app and earn amazing rewards. I love that idea. Brush your teeth, get rewards, free refills, products, Target gift cards, and more with stylish and affordable electric brushes starting at just $25. You won't be paying through the teeth for better oral health. Ooh, Thank good you. one. I really like the mouthwash, by the way. Very, very refreshing. And folks, if you go to getquip.com slash milkshake right now, you'll get your first refill free. That's your first refill free at getquip.com slash milkshake. That's spelled G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash milkshake. Quip, the good habits company. It's never too early to start gift shopping for the holidays, especially because today you can save big on a gift they'll use every day. I'm talking about Raycon wireless earbuds. I got myself a pair of these earbuds a couple of months ago. They were so great. They were so fantastic. And then I let my niece borrow them and I've never seen them again. But I keep seeing like pictures of her on social media with these Raycon uh, little earbuds in her ears. And I'm like, those are mine. I want them back, Rain. You want me to uh, take care of this? You want me to get those uh, Raycons back from your niece? Because um, <laughs> well, I know people. The thing about these things, they've got the seamless Bluetooth pairing. They're this uh, comfortable noise isolating fit. You can start listening right away and you can keep listening for hours. The audio quality is amazing. The best of any headphones that I've ever used. It's basically comparable to like what you would get from other premium brands, except that Raycon starts at half the price, my friend. Raycon offers eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in mic and you can take calls on your earbuds at the press of a button. So this holiday season... Get them something they can use for calls or music, for work or play, at home or on the go, or just, you know what, just pick up a pair for yourself and your niece. So go to buyraycon.com slash milkshake today to unlock exclusive deals up to 20% off your Raycon order. But hurry, this offer is available for a limited time only, and you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash milkshake to unlock up to 20% off your Raycons. Buyraycon.com slash milkshake. So how do we put this love in action the way that these civil rights heroes of ours did? We created a team of researchers from the fields of ethics, education, conflict resolution, and neuroscience. Like the I Avengers? Really, kind of. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. And Which one of them is Hawkeye? <laughs> you can the probably, lamest one. I was going to say, you can probably just tell him to stay home. He's fine. We don't, we don't really need them. <laughs> Keep going. Is um, so we wanted to roll up our sleeves and get serious about like, well, how do people practice love? Like if love is labor, then how do we practice it? And I thought, OK, we begin with empathy or we begin with compassion or respect. I was completely floored by the discovery that the primary act in choosing to love another person is wonder. Can I look up on your face? and see you as a sister, as a brother. 
can I wonder about your story? Can I wonder about you such that you are as vast and complex and endless as I am to myself? Uh, can I look upon you and say, you are part of me that I do not yet know? And when we do that, we expand the circle of who counts as one of us. And if we see another as one of us, we're more likely to grieve with them. We're more likely to fight for them when they're in harm's way. Brain imaging studies show us that we divide the world between us and them all of the time, consciously and unconsciously. We can't undo it. And demagogues win when they so successfully shut down our capacity to wonder that they make entire groups of people vermin or foreigners or terrorists or them. But to reclaim our capacity to wonder is to resist that. Is to, is, is to expand that circle. And that's where solidarity can be built. So our primary practice in how to love others is to wonder about them, to grieve with them, and to fight for them when they're in harm's way. We can talk about opponents and ourselves when you're ready. Well, well let, um, just to follow up on that for one second. So, yes, you expand the circle of who is us, but there are still people who are them. Yes. So what about them? I would say... Can you convince Reza to take this love to Donald Trump over the course of this podcast? No. The answer to that question is no. Because I'm I'm very curious to, about this issue of them. And I'm and I'm and this is but not But aren't you making Donald Trump a them? He's he is them. He is for sure them. Yeah. And not just him. But every, is he different everyone them who supports his policy than the, you know, governor of the racist governor of Mississippi or Alabama during the civil rights movement or the or the racist, you know, British governors of, right. of India during that insurrection. No, he, is, he is as much them as possible. For me, them is actually a pretty easy category if you dehumanize an other, if you strip another person. But aren't you person, dehumanizing another just by saying No, that? because I don't I don't loathe Donald Trump because he's an orange American. There are a lot of orange Americans that I, I think are, are worthy of love. Like my uncle I Ronnie. loathe him because he is a despicable human being who exudes uh, moral rot and evil, that he puts his work and effort into demeaning and dehumanizing other people because of the way they look or because of their socioeconomic status or because of their their background. I loathe him because the world would literally be better if he weren't in it. That's a that's different, right? That that definition of them, I think, um, is very difficult for me to burst through. I I think I spend a good part of my life in the MLK camp, but the older I get, the more I move from his camp to Malcolm X's camp. It's okay to have a them. Donald Trump is my opponent too. White nativists, and in fact, anyone who has voted for him is my opponent too. So my dad voted for Trump. Is, is he your opponent? Unfortunately, in this moment, yes. And so are members of my family. My, my family. My, my, most of my in-laws. How, how are they your opponent? They're not my enemy. They are my opponent because they have supported policies that directly go against my existence and my son's future. And so what does it mean to practice love for them? Um, it's to affirm their humanity. And that's the baseline. So here's what I've discovered, that there are no such thing as monsters in this world. 
there are only people who are wounded, who, because of their own insecurity, their own sense of threat, their greed, or their blindness, cast the vote or pass the policy or pull the trigger that is aimed at us. But if we start to wonder even about them and listen to their stories beneath the slogans and sound bites, we hear that they're frail human beings. We hear how their participation in our oppression comes at a cost, right? It cuts them off from their own capacity to love. So what does it mean to love them? The practice that we've developed is called tend the wound. And the very first step in that is, is rage. People tend to think that rage is the opposite of love. But in fact, Audre Lorde tells us that rage carries vital information, that rage to find safe containers for our own rage, make it so that we don't suppress our rage and hurt ourselves or let it explode in violence toward others. So tending our own wound is the first step, tending to our rage. And for some of us, we need to stay there. For those of us for whom it is safe, the next step is to listen, to listen to what's at stake to, for our opponents. And we listen not to change their minds, to prove that we're right. We listen in order to gain critical information about what it is that allows them to hurt us, what policies allow them, authorize them to hurt us, what cultural norms allow them to hurt us. And in gaining that information, like loving our opponents is not just moral, Reza. For me, it's strategic. It is pragmatic. It is how I gain the information to reimagine is the final step. Reimagine the conditions that continue to allow them to hurt me. So here's how I love Donald Trump. Okay, here's how I love Donald Whoa, Trump. Okay. <laughs> because here's 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 what I think, truly. Like the first stage in any kind of spiritual journey is, oh, we're all connected. Oh, look at that. We're all cells. We're all molecules. We're all we are all breathing. We're all struggling. We've all suffered. Um I imagine the 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 horrors of Donald Trump's upbringing. What would it be like to be raised by Fred Trump? But then if you go to next level, I go I'm not just connected. I I am Donald Trump. We are all one. We are all actually completely and totally unified. And I see in myself a lot of Trump. I see narcissism. I see vanity. I see wanting to be right a lot. So I see these qualities in myself kind of bloated in an, in another person. And that allows me to go, I'm... I'm not only connected to Donald Trump, I am Donald Trump. There's Trump in me. There's rain in Trump. There's beauty in life and breath uh, in all of us. That might sound a little airy-fairy, hippy-dippy, but I truly believe that for humanity to progress forward, instead of yelling at each other on Twitter and trying to shame people on Twitter, which is essentially kind of the extent of most people's social activism these days, that we have to build something that recognizes the beautiful divinity that makes us all literally the same. You are practicing revolutionary love. In Thank the, you. Yes. Do I the, get a certificate? No, because because um, it's also your, if I may be so bold, um, privilege as a white person mm -hmm. that allows you to wonder about him and connect with him in that particular way. If you're a person of color, if you're if you're um, a Muslim or a Sikh or an immigrant right now where you have a boot on your neck and you cannot breathe, it is not our job to look up and wonder about the person who is trying to kill us. Right. What it's, kind of father did he have? 
Yeah, I mean, I'm. But somebody I'm else can do that work. Sometimes I can do that. Sometimes, mm-hmm. but most of the time, I. Well, Martin my, Luther King did that work, and Gandhi did as well. But again, they. I, I don't. I with don't boots think on their that, necks. But to and I agree with you. I understand that my white privilege gives me a certain kind of remove. I haven't seen friends like unjustly like shot by cops, you know, for their skin color. I haven't seen my relatives put in cages, you know. I have so I, I haven't seen my uncle shot because he was brown, you know. Of course, I, I totally get that. But isn't it a challenge, really, for all of us? That's why we're connected, you and I, and that's we're part of a movement. Right. You can do that wondering work when I can't, when all I can do is breathe to survive, to get through the next day when well, I need I, a place I, for my so rage. I'm a little confused because so, you said that you that was that wondering was the next phase. So you're saying you can't do the wondering work. I, I, there are certain opponents for whom I can wonder and listen to. Right. And I got to the point after 15 years where I could do that with my uncle's murderer. I couldn't do it a year after. But I'm. Thank God there was somebody in the prison to do that because it helped him heal. It helped him learn how to apologize eventually. Right. So uh, we all have different roles in different moments. And as long as this president is our oppressor right now (laughs) in chief, like I need you and others to do that work with his supporters and with him. And I need others to stand up for me um, to wonder about me and to grieve with me and to fight for me. And I need to learn how to breathe and push through the pain so that I can keep surviving. In other words, the framework is so robust. Revolutionary love is so robust that everybody has a role in any different time. And as long as I'm not saying, Rain, don't do that because he's a monster, then I'm practicing revolutionary love too. I'm saying you are part of me, Rain, and you can do what I can't do right now. But for me, the idea of like, well, what would it take to, to love Trump? That's a nonsensical question. I think that there is a very clear moral absolute when it comes to individuals who are driven by the need to dehumanize others, to remove others' humanities. There is no gray area there for me. It is black and white. If that's who you are, There is no room for you in this conversation. There is no effort or energy that I'm going to expend in any way, shape, or form in trying to understand you, let alone reach out for you. You have, have, uh, you deny the most basic rule of the game. So there's a difference. I think sometimes that, that gets confused as anyone who disagrees with me or anyone who is my opponent is outside the game. On the contrary, this isn't how I feel about all Trump voters. On the contrary, this isn't how I feel about Trump voters who, you know, want lower taxes or stronger, you know, immigrant borders. That's not, that's not what I'm referring to here. But if you accept the Trump ideology Right. Which is that if you're brown or you're black or you're gay, you're less than for me, the moral the moral clarity there is quite uh, clear. So so this could be a much longer conversation, but then you don't believe in redemption because I think that love leads to redemption. So I think the key for me, Reza, is that everybody has a different role. Right. Yeah. Everyone has a different like I, I the the boot is on my throat. Mm-hmm. Like when I anyone asking me to love this president, I mean, I I get triggered. Right. And then I remember like, oh, what is revolutionary love right now? It's tending to my own wound and giving them permission mm-hmm. to do the listening. 
right? It's not my role. That everybody has a different place and every and different role at any given time. And that's why I think revolutionary love can only be practiced in community. I see it as an orientation to life that is both political and personal. It's almost like a mm-hmm. compass. Like what do I need now? What, so, what do I need now? I need I need love for ourselves. Like communities of color who are in harm's way right now, they they need, we need um to to survive. Okay, you know what, Rain? Every single time we do one of these Brooklyn and ads, I say, I woke up in Brooklyn and sheets uh, this morning. And I think at a certain point, people are thinking, Reza, do you wash your sheets? And the answer is yes, but I am obsessed with my Brooklyn and sheets. I put them on every single time instead of putting on any other sheets. They are so comfortable. Look, you can't put a price on comfort, right? You just can't. And you know what? Brooklinen's biggest sale of the year is right around the corner, folks. Wait, so then you can put a price on comfort. Brooklinen's, love the pun, Brooklyn, Brooklinen's entire site of super soft, seriously cozy essentials is going on sale this weekend. Brooklinen was created to bring dreamy comfort to every corner of your space at prices so affordable, they may make you pinch yourself. Brooklinen's comfort game is unmatched and their lineup keeps getting better. They got five-star sheets that that were just the start. Now they got this collection of cozy must-haves that includes things like Dream It Decor. And also, they now have these newly launched slippers. Brooklinen has slippers? Brooklinen has slippers. Will you get me those for the holiday? Because I think that you probably can get a a deal on those. I actually wasn't planning on buying you a gift, but okay, I'll think about it. So don't miss out, folks. Brooklinen's biggest sale of the year is here. Are you listening to this after the sale? You can still save... Visit brooklinen.com and use promo code MILKSHAKE for $20 off with a minimum purchase of $100. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code MILKSHAKE. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm not meaning this insulting at all, but I'm hearing a lot of great phrases. We need to do this in community, etc. Um, but... How do you put this into meat and potatoes practice on the street? As a as a means of actually affecting social change. I'm not interested in creating a revolutionary love movement. I'm interested in seeding the existing movements with the concept and practices of revolutionary love. Mm. So when I see um, young activists claiming Black Lives Matter, when I see indigenous elders at Standing Rock, when I see the thousands of people at airports standing for Muslim and Sikh and Hindu and Americans in the wake of hate violence or in the wake of these policies, I want to look how many people are already burned out. 
right? How many people are opting out? How many people are tired and numb? And when we are tired and numb, we retreat into whatever privilege we have, mm-hmm. right? How do we stay pushing into the fire? I see my role and the work of this project as to give people tools to keep pushing into the fire. And so we do this on the ground, right? We do this, we curate hundreds of dialogues across the country. We work with the places like the Women's March and um, and, uh, and other coalitions to give people mass mobilizations. We are creating a curriculum for university and college campuses. We are trying to stage a meaningful intervention in the 2020 election season. But here's what I want to say. Like, social change happens, I believe, in the course of 25-year cycles. And in the next 25 years, the United States will become, for the first time since colonization, um, the number of people of color will exceed the number of white people. So we are at a crossroads, right? Will we, like, will we birth a nation that has never been like multiracial, multi-faith, multicultural, where power is shared, where we strive to protect the dignity of every person, right? Or will we continue to descend into a kind of a kind of civil war, you know, a, a, a power struggle with people who want to return America to a past where a certain class of white people hold cultural, economic, political dominion? And when we think of of climate change, then then the question becomes global, right? The storms are coming. The seas are rising. Humanity itself is in transition, Mm -hmm. right? Will we marshal the skill and solidarity and vision to solve this problem together or will we perish? The greatest existential crisis uh, that we are facing isn't political. It's not economic. um, It's global. (laughs) Um, So explain to our listeners how a strategy of revolutionary love can help affect the kinds of radical climate um, changes that we need to enact in order to keep from, you know, all dying in the next two, three decades. So love for others, love for opponents and love for ourselves. Love for others It means that we have to love and care enough about those millions of people who are mostly black and brown people around the globe who will be most affected by the climate change that's upon us. We must see them as mothers and fathers and children like our own. And we must be able to have the capacity to grieve with them and then to fight for them. So wonder, grieve, and fight are the core practices under loving others. What does it mean to fight? It means everyone has a role, that everyone has a sword. Is it your pen? Is it your artist brush? Is it your scalpel? Is it your pocketbook? The idea is that everybody has a role in this fight. I think too many people are giving in to despair and to helplessness, but each of us has a voice in some particular way. So that's how we love others love for opponents. I think it's important to to protect rage. There's a lot to be angry about the corporations and the governments and the previous generations that have allowed this to happen. Mm -hmm. So we protect capacity for rage and we value our rage. And then we listen to what's at stake for our opponents. And right now it's greed and it's a very short term way to understand the world. And it's not enough of us being at the table. And so then the final practice is reimagine. How do we reimagine the conditions so the rest of us who want to save the world have 
have a seat at the table. It begins with our elections. And so I, I think that that's how we love for love our opponents for too, too long in my in my world as an activist. Anytime I've gone after bad actors, I put away police officers. I've taken down mayors. I mean, we've actually done the work. Um, we never really changed very much. Right. Anytime we, we went after policies, systems, that's when we saw change. We passed net neutrality regulations. We changed federal hate crimes policy. What might it mean to change the the templates, the structures by which we govern how and how how we how we respond to climate change? So that's like imagining systems. So then finally, love for ourselves. This the practices here are breathe, push, and transition. So um, the midwife she doesn't say breathe and then push the rest of the way, right? She says breathe and then push, and then breathe again, and then push, and then breathe again. I think if we're going to be in this fight, you know, for ourselves, for our children, we can't just keep pushing so that we get burnt out, so that we opt out. What does it mean to breathe? What does it mean to breathe in the course of the day? What does rest look like? What does it mean to let joy in every night, no matter how dark the day is, whether I'm coming back from a vigil or a protest? My son like says, dance time, mommy. Mm-hmm. And we dance. I mean, on election night, we danced, right? Dancing um, is for us how we bring joy in. And joy reminds us of everything that is good and right and worth fighting for, right? The future that is worth fighting for. So I think that that making those practices, loving ourselves, even as we're showing up to the labor, is how we're going to continue to have the energy and the stamina to keep fighting between now and Election Day in November, but months and years beyond that. And honestly, you guys, this is what this is the truth. You know, for the first time in my life, I I heard a voice in me that was like, I'm not strong enough. Like, I can't do it. Um, I prefer non-existence to this. And it was frightening for me. It was uh, starting to appear in my mind and in my heart um, in the last three years after this president took office. That's how dark it was for me. And I thought, I need to find a different way. Like the labor for justice has gone on long before I was born. It will continue long after I die. What might it mean to make the labor for justice an end in and of itself? And if we're showing up with love, through love, if we're laboring with love, then we can last. Because if we're laboring with love, then the labor becomes porous. And the labor is porous, we can let joy in. So this framework for revolutionary love, this orientation to, to show up with love, is really a way to, like, was primarily a way to save my own life. And now more and more, it's how we are, we are staying in the labor together. That was fantastic. Wow, I, I did not expect a five-point answer Plan. to my <laughs> question. I thought it was just going to be... Sorry. Riffing on love? Riffing. It's like, number one, we do this. Number, <laughs> number two. two. <laughs> okay, we've got to move on to some lightning round questions here. We could go on for another <laughs> hour. lightning enough? No, we now, no, 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 no. We're going to put, th- put things to the test right here, right now. When do you feel the most connected with the universe? When I'm holding a sleeping baby in my arms. What do you want your final meal to be? Anything that my mother makes. <laughs> when was the last time you ugly cried? Uh, election night? No, uh, when my friend Joyce died. Who's the hardest person that you've ever tried to love? Bo Beer Uncle's killer. Describe your soul in 10 words or less. Uh, infinite, uh, vibrant, buoyant, um, 
Mm, part of part of you. What makes you laugh out loud? <laughs> my son. <laughs> Mommy, you are my rainbow flag of the universe. <laughs> All the ways he tries to express his love for me. It's, uh, it's a little too much. What is your biggest fear? Uh, that my children will die before me. What's one thing you know for sure? Mm, that I will die. What is your life's big question? How do I love? Valerie Court, thank you so much for coming in here and challenging us and <laughs> and giving us the the five point plan for saving the planet. I thought you that was it. pretty helpful. <laughs> yes. If nothing else. Absolutely. That. Can't wait for your book to come out. I adore you both. Thank, thank you, you so much. <laughs> Reza, mm. I revolutionarily love you. <laughs> Look, I revolutionarily love you too. Do I revolutionarily love Trump? Trump? No. Mm. Here's what I will say that was I thought fascinating about this conversation, and it did give me a little bit of clarity, I have to be honest, which is that if what she is saying is that we are engaged in an existential conflict, and I, and I believe that, and the other side is using the tools of hate and fear and anger and racism. If her argument is the most powerful weapon to defeat that is love, okay, I'm listening now. Now I'm listening. Because what she's basically saying— I think that's exactly what she was saying. Yeah, and now I'm listening. Okay. You know, I think before what I heard was just love them. You know, love them, and that's the proper response. It, you know, it's it's love them in order to achieve maximum change. Which is their defeat. You know, you can view love as passive so easily. Uh, that's as like, it. love is passive, it's soft, it's... Uh, it's not empowered. It's 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 uh, it's just allowing people to walk all over you, as opposed to love as a as a positive, vital, and you know effective source for social change. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, I'm 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 convinced. Okay. Good. It, it worked. Uh, listeners, how do you define love? Do you think that love can be a force for social change? Do you think we need a revolutionary love project? To help us along? I don't know. Yeah. Tell us what you think. You can find us on socials at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson. We are on Twitter at Meta Milk Podcast. How do you think we can love better? How can we change the world with love? Yes. And not in the sort of, you know, hippy dippy, hippy dippy way, but in the real like love is a tool. Love is a weapon. It is powerful. It can actually work where other tools have failed. Milkshakers, as we always remind you uh, on our program, if you rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your fine podcasts. And Wait a minute. You- Did you just come up with the perfect name for fans of our show? Milkshakers? Milkshakers. I love it. <laughs> we happen to have a milkshaker on the program who did what we always say. Rate, review, ask a question on Apple Podcasts. If we like the question, we'll bring you on and we'll ask you. And we have a milkshaker 
with us <laughs> right now, Becky Bortak from Michigan. Hi, Becky. Hi, Reza. Hi, Rain. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, so I have a big life's question for you, and my question is about suffering. Oh, man. And I'm oh, wondering... so you're going to bring us down, aren't you? Oh, you're gonna, wow, you're really Becky. bring things down here, aren't you? Couldn't it have been about kittens or about empanadas? <laughs> Why are kittens so cute? Why are empanadas so delicious? Fine, Becky, hit us. Here we go. So suffering, you know, why does it exist? Everyone experiences it. We we all live through it. Um, do we bring it on ourselves? Is it a human problem? Is it a fate chance? You know, what is it about suffering and why is it out there? Wow, this is uh, this just hits all the notes, doesn't it? It's got some theology in there, some existentialism, yep. some philosophy. It it really does. It it it's it's a cross platform. <laughs> question. And um, and it doesn't matter if you're a theist or an atheist. Yeah. Like, why is there suffering in the physical universe? And um, yeah, why does it have to be so much? Why so much of it? Well, look, you know, the, the sort of theological answer that we've heard for, you know, generations and generations is that uh, Either that suffering is the result of God, you know, testing you. The Bible has this really beautiful verse where it says, you know, God will never give you more than you can handle. So like whatever you're suffering, it's just enough. It's just like at the very edge of what you can handle because God is is testing you. By the way, that's what a dick God is, is that's true, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, what an asshole. It's like, <laughs> I'm going to push you right to your absolute limit. God would be an even bigger dick if some theological people say that that's not what suffering is. Suffering is for is for punishment and for the bad. Like if you get cancer, it's because you've been a bad person. That God is an even bigger prick. People had obviously trouble with this notion that we're describing, the God is a dick theology, which is, uh, and so they invented the devil you know, if you're interested in the invention of the devil, I write all about it in my previous book. Uh, but uh, and so, you know, you put you put the 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 responsibility for suffering uh, on you know some kind of cosmic evil, right? So that you're like, well, it's not God's fault. It's not my fault. Uh, it's you know the fault of of this demonic being, which also very unsatisfying. Rain, very unsatisfying. Yeah, you know. an evil creature is like out of a Marvel comic book. It doesn't, it's like <laughs> Thanos. Thanos made me do it. Um, as if there is a source from evil. And it always bothered me because if God is all powerful, well, God could kill the devil at any time, but he, I yeah. guess he chooses not to. But I guess where I always go with suffering um, is uh, number one, for those atheists out there, uh, we live in a physical universe, and uh, suffering is part of that. We are a creature. Everything suffers. Uh, the Buddha, As the Buddha says, life is suffering. The joyful acquiescence in a life of suffering. A dandelion suffers when someone steps on it. You know, a kitty cat suffers when a kid throws a rock at it. You know, a human being suffers when they break a bone on a swing set. There's levels and levels to suffering because we have pain receptors, and we are you know, changeable beings and we'll be dead at some point in time and we're going to suffer along the way. And we're also have emotions that will suffer besides our physical bodies. But I always frame this question and maybe I've said this before on this show. I can't remember. What would it be like if there were no suffering? Mm -hmm. What would the, what would the universe be like? 
Because this is an often an argument that's used to like show that there couldn't possibly be a God because there's all this suffering. And if there is an all loving providence, energy, a loving uh, entity, there wouldn't be so much pain and suffering in the world. And it's like, well, okay, so let's pretend that there is a, a, either there is a God or there isn't a God, but we're in a physical universe in which there is no suffering, right? When you're born, the vagina opens up to be the size <laughs> you know, of a suitcase and you climb out and there's no crying. There's only laughing and hugging. The mom feels nothing. <laughs> you know, you never break a bone, right? You never mm -hmm. stub a toe or skin a knee. You know, no one ever, everyone only dies at age like 100 and it's just lights. Everyone knows they're going to die at 100 and they're at peace with it. Like that kind of unit, that kind of universe, both from a, you know, a physics standpoint and a biological standpoint just makes zero sense. And also, also from a theological standpoint, it makes zero sense because we realize us, especially all of us, and we're a little older than you, Becky, um, that suffering uh, is, is, is terrible. And some people have suffered far, 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 far greater than I ever have. I'm a very privileged su minor sufferer, but our, our tremendous growth comes from suffering and there has to be some kind of um it's a some kind of spiritual arena in this physical <laughs> realm that involves suffering the buddha was on to something mm -hmm. i mean you can't have light without darkness you wouldn't know what light is if there wasn't darkness it's that kind of idea yeah no i agree i i know personally like like you said rain i have fortunately have not had any um extreme suffering, but the suffering I have has, you know, helped me grow, helped me become a better person and certainly been useful in my life. Um, and I think about the movie, The Matrix. And I remember one, uh, one um, when they talk about how the, the machines had put them in this dream state and they made it a utopia and the people kept waking up because it was too good. And so it's, it's just really interesting to think about that and think about how we're, we're sort of built for suffering. We sort of expect it in our, in our lives. So I, I would agree with you guys. I do think that, and, and I've said this before too, that uh, as somebody who does believe that there is evil in the world, but doesn't subscribe to some cosmic source for that evil, just believes that evil is the result of human actions, you know, the free will of human beings. Um, you know, I, I think it's important that we don't, um, we don't always sort of, uh, try to come up with some kind of grand cosmic idea for, you know, why I am suffering, you know, what, what is God trying to tell me by not, you know, getting me that job? Nothing, nothing. Right. God, right. You, you didn't get the job. It sucks. Cry for a little while and then, you know, try again. There is also a kind of self-imposed suffering, right? Suffering comes mm -hmm. in two different ways. Suffering can come from like, oh, I found out I have this terrible blood disease. And suffering can also come from making the same mistakes over and over again. Mm -hmm. And I've certainly suffered a great deal in my life from making a series of bad decisions and then finding myself making those same decisions over and over and over again. Like, what the hell? So needing to learn from that suffering. And, you know, one could say, well, did, you know, did God send that down rain or, or did you cause that? I was like, you know, I guess like Reza says, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't think, I don't think God is like a kind of a puppet master with each one of us, like little strings on each one of us. And he's got 7 billion fingers 
and there's seven billion human beings and he's kind of like uh orchestrating stuff but at the same time like i'm profoundly grateful i said profoundly i'm profoundly grateful um for some of the suffering that i've undergone and for the fact that there has been some suffering in my life that i've perpetrated and then had to kind of mature my way out of yeah well thanks becky yeah. this is uh you know you, you brought us down that's fine <laughs> I don't know how we go, where we go from here, but. And just one last question. Who do you like better? <laughs> Come on. Well, I was going to say this. So first of all, thank you both for answering my question. That was very helpful. And I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and all you share with on your podcast. And um, now to cheer myself up, I'm going to go watch an episode of The Office. So. Oh, oh okay. <laughs> I, I guess I'll, okay. I'll just sit here and ask God why it is that. Why well, you just caused some suffering, Becky. You caused suffering in the heart of Reza Aslan. And for that, I applaud you. I don't blame you. I blame Satan. <laughs> Satan spoke through Becky to you, Reza. Sorry, Reza. <laughs> All right, Becky. Thank you very much. Thank you both. So great to meet you. Bye-bye. Thank you again to our guest, Valerie Kaur. You can check out her work at revolutionarylove.net and find her on social at Valerie Kaur. And if you're so inclined, you can actually sign the Declaration of Revolutionary Love. <laughs> it's at revolutionarylove.net. You'll be the first to hear about the book and the tools and the various ways to show up in 2020 and beyond. I love you. I love you. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick Demaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold. Audio mixed by Joshua Harris. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. It was additionally executive produced by Golriz Lucina and Dariush Brizuela Nothoff. It was produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lehrer of the Mashup Americans. Associate producers are Jocelyn Gonzalez, Lindsay Craterwill, Sarah Pellegrini, Mary Phillips Sandy, and Shelby Sandlin. And I'm so grateful that my son has the resilience when I when I don't. Oh my God. Who's how did Rain Wilson? My phone's off, but my computer's ringing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We will cut all this out. God damn it. Really? <laughs> that was so terrible. love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.